The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect that of the Up Together organization. I'm Mena Diaz, and you're listening to the Moving Up Together podcast. And today, we're continuing our conversation about gentrification and how it contributes to the racial wealth gap. It's a pretty deep topic, so we wanted to go ahead and bring an expert on um, to help us break it down. So joining us today is Kat Goganauer, the Director of Racial Wealth Equity Strategy at Prosperity Now, based in our nation's capital and my hometown, Washington, D.C. So welcome, Kat. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Um, we're so glad that you're here. So we'd like to kick it off with a little fun fact about yourself. So do you have an interesting or something funny about yourself you'd like to share with us? Uh, I think the most interesting fact, given the work that I do today around the racial wealth divide is in the past, in my former life, I was an artist and a fashion designer. So um, very different career trajectory in this uh, phase of life. But um Definitely, it's serving me well, transferable skills around design and development of innovative solutions. So that's, I think, the connection there. I don't know if it's the most fun, but (laughs) definitely something most people don't know about me. But it's something you're doing that is helping others, which, fun or not, it's it's necessary. People like you are necessary. And the fact that your brain thinks in more of that artistic way, I'm sure helps you come up with, come, come up around a lot of uh, red tape, so to speak, that we can face um, when we're dealing with these kinds of situations, like the topic that we're discussing today. Um, So, okay, you're the director of the Racial Wealth Equity Strategy at Prosperity Now. Can you tell us a little bit about your organization and what your actually work, uh, what your work consists of there? Absolutely. Yeah. Prosperity Now has been around, I think, 41 years now. Um, It is an asset and wealth building organization focuses on economic development. Uh, We are a nonprofit based in D.C. and we are a national intermediary. And many people are like, what does that mean? Right. Uh, (laughs) What kind of a nonprofit is that? Are you working with clients or what does that look like? So we partner with other nonprofits generally, also other sectors to design solutions to racial economic inequality, inequality more broadly, structural economic inequality. Um, And the team that I'm a part of, the Racial Wealth Equity Strategy, is the newest team at Prosperity Now. Mm -hmm. Um, I joined Prosperity Now in 2017, having been a a technical assistance recipient before that from Prosperity Now, Mm -hmm. um, which means that I worked with uh, staff to build our own solutions when I was still in Portland, Oregon. Mm -hmm. Um, Joined the Racial Wealth Divide Initiative, which was um, the pilot kind of of the work that's now spun off into two teams, the Racial Wealth Equity Strategy team that I head and Racial Economic Justice team that my colleague Ebony White head. So um, between these two, we're able to really um, lean into a lot of expertise and, and try to think about what do we build today that hasn't been built in the past to overcome histories of inequality um, and see change in the lives of ordinary people today? Bringing you know money to the pockets of the people is is how I talk about equity. So, okay, yeah, yeah, fair point. Because we don't move forward if we don't start developing our communities, our pockets, <laughs> and so on and so forth. So, Prosperity Now's vision is to create an economic or is to create an economy. That's just that's just and free from structural racism, one where every person, family and community has a power to build sustainable wealth and prosperity. Okay, so that's really very much in line with Up Together, which is the Mm -hmm. nonprofit that created this particular podcast. Um, There are some people who believe that the economy is already free from structural racism. What would Mm -hmm. you say to those people? 
Mm. Well, I mean, it all depends on one's perspective and lived experience. I think for some, you know, it's easy not to see the structures, systems, institutions that drive inequalities in this country. Mm -hmm. Um, That's by design. Um, It also Mm -hmm. is, you know, this ephemeral thing that exists alongside the invisible hand of the market. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, these are very abstract concepts and, and they're not actually real. Right. Um, right. So whether or not we believe in, in these things um, as drivers of inequality, you know, the ways that our society was created um, to intentionally include and exclude to, you know, allocate to some and uh, appropriate from others, you know, it, it's just a point of fact. So I think yep. the work before us today is really trying to make visible the invisible. How do you see a system? <laughs> What does a structure look like? Uh, how do institutional practices appear to us, right? And much of what we know today is simply because we can see it playing out in the lives of people. It's predictable. If we look um, okay. through certain lenses of race, class, gender, you know, geography, different things, we can see this consistent pattern happening. Um, and so the invitation to people who might not see the structures and systems and institutions is to ask themselves why people who are living very different lives are having similar life outcomes. And that then often brings dissonance because we're we're taught some are deserving, some are not, um, and that people kind of get what they deserve and, you know, what what they've reaped and sown. So in, in the work that I do, it's really incumbent upon understanding that race is not essentialized. You know, everybody who is a certain kind of person or from a certain place won't necessarily have the same outcomes unless there's something working underneath the surface that creates these kind of outcomes for everyone. So it's complicated, it's abstract, it's weird. um, And it's a beautiful thing that data helps us to see today um, and to dispel those myths and narratives about why some have and some have not. And really to think about if an economy worked from for everyone, as John Rawls said, anyone born into the society could achieve their potential. But there are certain ceilings that are keeping certain people in, in certain positions over generations. Uh, and there's so such a such a wide gap, right, mm-hmm. uh, for Black and Brown people, where as far as building wealth is concerned, right. Mm-hmm. So you got the leaders of the pack, and then you got everybody else. So I love that you said that because it's um, it's not invisible. We see it. And especially now in that day and age of information, we have this information. We have it at the touch of our, our, our mouse pad or, our, you know, our keyboard. And people just at this point, I think it's more of a choice rather than um, inv- it actually being invisible. So let's get into the meat of this, which is gentrification um, or at least part of it. Um, mm. It's not a new concept. Gentrification has been around for very, very many, 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 many years. Um, so could you explain to us what gentrification is and when it started here in the U.S.? Mm-hmm. I can take a stab. I mean, with all of these things, processes change over time and, you know, they get different names. But um, gentrification as a term was developed in England in the 1950s. Uh, and, you know, on its face, it's a very beautiful thing. <laughs> you know, it's driving investment into disinvested areas. 
um, and, you know, making them grow, um, giving them all the amenities, the things that they didn't have because of other structural practices. Mm-hmm. Um, the issue is, you know, putting a significant amount of investment in place without investing in people mm-hmm. perpetuates inequality. Um, the, as we put money into a place, the, the cost of living increases, property values, so the cost of, of services, of homes increases. And if we're not also thinking about how to alleviate poverty um, or impoverishment, then that means that the market, that invisible hand of the market starts mm-hmm. pushing people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, without them doing anything, because if suddenly your community went from homes that were $35,000 to homes that are $400,000 and the rent adjusts, you know, if you're earning $12,000 a year, which which many families are in this country, um, you will necessarily be pushed out if suddenly that is the cost of rent, if not more, because you can't afford anything else. But I, I would say the important thing to think about with regard to gentrification, it's a current manifestation of historical practices. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think if we think about it similarly to like colonization. Um, You know, if you look and see colonization was very intentional, it was identifying these places of vast natural resources and wealth and beauty and labor um, and discovery them, but with the point of extraction. Yeah. (laughs) Discovery. Um, And, and, you know, manifest destiny saying, and this is now mine because I recognize the beauty and the value. Similarly Mm -hmm. to disinvested urban areas that were ghettoized and Mm -hmm. and segregated spaces that um, society kind of drove black and brown people into during the Industrial Revolution, different things. Um, The precursors are necessary to understand what is happening today and that it is not a a neutral practice. And while it could be very good for revitalization or investment in community building wages or wealth, the money largely still goes to government, private sector, and developers, you know, and the, the owner class, the people who own all of these buildings and, and businesses. So. Right, right. And and like, for example, uh, your organization is based in D.C. Uh, so you're you I'm assuming you're very familiar with, um, you know, where the uh, where the stadium is down in southeast. Mm-hmm. I mean, I went home uh, recently. I recognize none of it. I, I, the wharf, I don't. I was just in awe of what it was built. But my first thought when I went there, I'm like, wow, this is beautiful. And now we have like a live, work, play community here. However, um, what about the families that lived here originally, you know, in the Southeast community? Um, Were they given the option to buy back their property once everything was beautified, you know, Mm -hmm. and were they able to buy it at a rate, um, rent or purchase at a rate that was affordable to these original families that had to be pushed out of that region, right? So um, looking to understand how gentrification has contributed to the wealth gap, um, can you tell us exactly what the racial wealth gap is, or at least give us a little more information on that and how gentrification has exacerbated it? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, the racial wealth gap is kind of this aggregation of history (laughs) um, and contemporary policies, practices, laws, um, and the impact they've had on the lives of people in in a capitalist economy. Um, So it's one way to measure um, inequality. 
uh, it's not the only way to measure it. And wealth is an indicator of, you know, economic system or markets. Um, but there are, you know, wages, poverty level, assets, debt. I mean, there are many factors and ways to think about it and even to think about what wealth then is um, this kind of aggregate plus and minus ownership and owing and, and all of these pieces. But the wealth gap is, is a really interesting way of thinking about the cost to people who were property, um, people who possessed land, who were dispossessed of land um, right. through um, colonial and imperialist practices, enslavement, um, and being able to say that there, these places were not neutral, these people were not of low value. These are stories we tell ourselves today. Actually, economies of the West were built upon these practices that took labor and land and did not compensate people. You know, now we talk about wage theft. We talk about, you know, access to wealth building, um, being like being able to capture the value of your intellectual property, the things you think and make. Back in the day, People were thinking and making, innovating every day, and none of the things that they made could they um, could they maximize because property couldn't own property. So it's very convoluted, right? As we think then about the the creation of human rights and the constitution of people who were three fifths of a person with regard to African Americans or Indigenous people who are not even seen as humans in in the constitution, how we then come out of history into like Jim Crow practices, into segregation. You know, right. the, the 20th century um, also had what we know, you know, redlining, um, FHA loaning, or the ways that the GI Bill was, you know, if people were able to use it, some were not. Yep. And then what all of those missed opportunities or wealth stripping or wage theft means and the aggregate in the lives of humans today. And I often, you know, a lot has been written about the black and white wealth gap. Um, there are multitudes of other gaps, right? For every ethnic group, um, gender, you know, there is a differential. Um, but I think currently the kind of math that's been done is, you know, 43 million black people in this country, if we wanted to overcome the wealth gap, it would be like up to $42 trillion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I parsed that out with some colleagues and we're looking at like $850,000 per person. And if you really break that down, the cost of a house, a business, a education and a living wage job with benefits, that's pretty much what we're talking about. But when we think about the perpetuation of the wealth gap and why it keeps growing 10 per, or 10 times differential or whatever to today, it's because people of color, BIPOC, black and brown, indigenous people are still not able to access opportunity um, and be compensated for their competencies at the level that society rewards um, you know, white people. So until that shifts, this gap persists. And as market fluctuations, pandemics, racial reckonings, all of these things happen or gentrification, it continues to grow the divide because the, the resources are still being allocated to a certain class of people rather than distributed more equitably and justly to everyone. Right. And one of the, the bigger examples of that is definitely owning property and owning land, you know, which essentially was the American dream, not only to come and become whatever it was that you want to be, but owning a piece of land, a piece of property that you can call your own. And I'm glad that you brought up uh, redlining um, because redlining, could you tell us a little bit, explain what redlining is for those of us that, that aren't familiar with it? Absolutely. It was a, a practice created by the financial 
institution industry um, in the early 20th century, early 1900s, to designate in urban areas which were good risk, high risk, low risk areas to invest money. Um, and so, you know, if you look at the Hulk map, the homeownership loan corporation maps, they always are red, yellow, green, and blue. Blue is the best um, place to loan, um, and then it goes green, and then yellow, and then red. Um, and red was usually, you know, low-income communities, um, immigrant communities, um, and then racialized communities once the Great Migration started happening. But the, the thing that's so insidious about redlining, those maps were adopted by the government as well as the private sector. So government also extended a practice of, of not only using those maps to determine risk and where to lend, the amounts of capital, the terms and conditions on money, but also to determine what areas would be blighted, right? And that is what the precursor to gentrification or transit-oriented development, if we look at the creation of freeways or right. eminent domain that took a lot of land for the creation of stadiums or, you know, these coliseums, you know, these big investments is taking private property, making it public, turning it into something that has a social value. But those, um, the interlocking nature of the private sector and public sector um, perpetuated redlining into and still today. Now we understand that uh, those practices and ways of thinking about risk and the color of risk are also part of appraisal. So even yes. properties that yes. are held by Black people um, generally are seen to be fifty thousand worth $50,000 less, which is, a, to me, key for gentrification. Right. Because right. that you have to buy low and sell high for gentrification. And if you suddenly make homeowners in the areas that are risky, uh, you know, people who are able to realize a greater value, they often won't live there. Um, or they often try to change the community to something that is safer or, or more um, similar to where they come from without uh, recognizing and kind of keeping the culture there. So redlining is still alive and well, right? It was also used to underwrite um, subprime lending, mm -hmm. um, where we saw that people with um, high incomes, if they were black and brown, they were still given subprime mortgages, even though they qualified for prime mortgages with, uh, with really good terms and conditions. So the housing crisis disproportionately stripped wealth from black and brown communities. I think, you know, it's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, 50% of wealth of, of African Americans and Latin Americans was stripped during 2007 to 10. And that wasn't kind of built back, just like in the pandemic, we know, like 40% of black and brown owned businesses shuttered. Mm -hmm. um, yet PPP was not structured to treat them first fastest with the most, which is how I think about equity, it was kind of open to everyone. And we see that the allocation of that continues to benefit people who have rather than the people who have not, who are losing, who the data tells us need to be prioritized. So it's this, you know, this um, holdover from the past, but it mm -hmm. has temporary manifestations, op opportunity zones, urban renewal areas, tax increment financing, ways that, you know, monies that would go to communities are capped and then given to other people, developers and things. It keeps communities poor until they yeah. become wealthy. And by that point, people are usually, you know, pushed out. Right. Pushed out of it. So just to play devil's advocate here, because I, I I live in a, in a nicer area. Um, I did not grow up in this type of area where I currently live. So, <laughs> so 
to play devil's advocate, what would you say to people that says gentrification actually helps? It increases property values, which it does. Um, you know, it brings more businesses into the area, so on and so forth. And I, you know, by blessing, get to live in an area like that. Um, but again, because of my mother's sacrifices, I was ever to be in the position that I am. I am. So what would you say that to people who say, well, you know, there is a bright side to gentrification. Um, what would you say to people like that? And just to kind of put it into perspective, perspective where, yes, it's it's positive, but there's a but. Mm-hmm. Well, first I would say the devil doesn't need any advocates. <laughs> There's no need to do that work. It's plenty been done in this world. Um, but, you know, I, I think the argument is sound. If you think about the United States, you know, rising tide will lift all boats, trickle down economy, make the wealthy richer, and they'll create jobs. You know, we have a lot of these ways of thinking about our economy. The reality is... It is a good thing with really negative outcomes and it's very easy to rectify those outcomes. All one needs to do is invest in people as well as place, in the people as well as the sticks and bricks. What that can look like is if you know urban renewal is coming to an area, do an assessment of the, the economic um, situation, situatedness of certain zip codes. Think about, you know, are people employed? Do they Are they entrepreneurs? Are they homeowners? Are they renters? Being able to put in place preliminarily um, some really strong uh, stabilization processes. You know, there are preference policies that are targeting people based on zip code for opportunity. Down payment assistance before homes, you know, go from less than 100,000, which people couldn't access loans, um, to buy those homes because um, banks want to underwrite loans under 50,000 dollars <laughs> suddenly now those homes are 350 400,000 but if you earn 20 40,000 dollars you can't qualify for that with regard to debt to income ratio mm-hmm. so you know being really smart about the way we understand market and the levers of the market and being able to think preemptively preventatively and this is not a strength of the United States. We like to fix something after it's broken. Yeah. <laughs> In England, where I went to school, they do the precautionary principle. So do all the analysis, figure out what stabilization needs to happen. If you drive those resources in, you will also then maintain the culture of place. Mm-hmm. And that's the biggest um The thing that I hear most often from people who move to communities because they're like, it's diverse. I love the culture. There's a tipping point. And then they're often like, why is this community so homogenous? What happened to the people who were here? I moved here for that. Right. You know, and there it should be both and because those people would stay if they could have businesses and still represent their culture in those communities. And, you know, we know that that not only makes a more holistic community, but it also makes a more vibrant community. And it makes a more desirable community for tourism, for, you know, people who want to move there, for people to stay, not just kind of flow through onto the next place. And for people to really do powerful placemaking around art um, and culture. You know, these are vital pieces of, of, of being a human as well as how do we use art and culture and create beautiful things generation on generation, to your point, which is so important, and not erase Mm-hmm. What was here that was so beautiful, and I call it a racism, you know, it also pr- 
perpetuates thoughts that people never built a thing. There was nothing ever here. We discovered it. We made it beautiful. Sometimes when I see pictures of old cities that have been raised for these new developments, it is, I mean, not sometimes, always, so heartbreaking. You can just feel the pulse of these communities. You know people were connected. You know they were safe. You know that people looked out for each other, that there were significant relationships and businesses built because people revered each other. So I think it's a shift in the way that we think about community, mm-hmm. um, that it's not just place, it's people in place and, and how we preserve and build these things together that allow us to to place, make and place keep to stay. Right. Right. And. I'm not an economist, but, you know, just based on observations that I've made, uh, you know, from growing up from where, you know, my mom and I came from to where I'm at now, um, a diverse community, not just in color, but also diverse community in wealth, um, I feel makes a, um, se dice? A, a tighter ship, like it's harder to destroy that community. So whether my neighbor is making over a hundred grand more than me, um, but they still live in the apartment next to me or the condo next to me. Um, and then I have, you know, um, Miss Diaz downstairs selling her pupusas and selling her, all, you know, and she makes a, a a decent living. But I feel like having that mixture within that community also kind of makes it not bulletproof um, mm. or recession proof or inflation proof. But I do feel that they would have a longer, long, more longevity versus a community that is completely completely desolate and has been dissipated from any kind of resource that they could possibly have versus their neighboring community that is rolling in dough, so to speak. With Mm -hmm. that, gentrification, we know, again, is one of the causes for the racial wealth gap. Um, What are other reasons that push this this wealth gap, that continue to push this wealth gap into today, into the 20, you know, further into the 20th century? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I agree with you 100% about diversity being economic as well as racialized. And, you know, communities in the past were diverse economically because they were homogenous racially. So, you know, communities had lawyers and doctors who were of the same races who often couldn't practice in other communities. So we had more vertical institutions in our community. So you could work in a law firm or get your foot in the door or people were patronizing, you know, these smaller businesses. So it is more of a circular inclusive economy, which is more recession proof, it's stronger. Um, It also can withstand changes to policy and law, except for integration. Integration was a very different policy that turned a community uh, made more dependent and less independent. So um, I think the main reasons, I mean, the wage gap, the wealth gap. So, you know, we know that people are working twice as hard for half as much. It's a colloquialism, but it's also a reality. And it isn't specific to one um, racial group. It's also by gender. Mm-hmm. Um, I just read a report recently and said it would take over 100 years for um, gender parity with regard to wages. And I just thought, oh, gosh, for for the wealth gap, they're saying if the data did not change since 2016, it would take 245 years oh. for African Americans to catch up to the level of white wealth in 2016 and 94 years for Latina communities to catch up to the level of white wealth in 2016. Of course, much has changed since 2016. People have lost a significant amount. So those projections are even greater. Um, I think, you know, 
unequal access to uh, protection, consumer protection, um, you know, rampant predation, not just by uh, payday lending or kind of alternative um, financing sources, but, you know, unfavorable terms and conditions that things are not transparent um, and that there are still ways that risk is uh, assessed to some and not to others. And so people are charged more. They're paying more for products. Um, in England, they call it the, the poverty premium. They said for, for poor people, everything costs more. Um, and it costs a greater percentage of your income. So, you know, our money, like my mom says, too much month at the end of the money, even if we were the best savers, the best budgeters, the most frugal um, <laughs> there isn't enough money. If the cost of living sixty to a hundred thousand dollars a year, and you're earning, you know, my family twenty five thousand for a family of four, it's just you're not going to make it. So there are issues around, you know, asset acquisition, you know, access to capital. How do you even finance a thing? Access to credit. You know, if you don't have cash in hand, you know, how do you get the capital to purchase something to then accrue equity, right? And that is the thing where you're essentially banking and saving in yourself, right? Um, and then generally, you know, just discrimination. <laughs> you know, even when we go and try to access these things often, you know, without knowing unless you do match pair testing, which I did um, as a, a worker in a fair housing council doing civil rights, match pair testing is amazing. You send in a white person and a black person who on paper is more qualified and you see, do they get treated the same? Do they get given the same thing? And what you will see is no. When they talk to the same person, even the more qualified person gets something different. Mm -hmm. So there are those are, you know, the systems and the structures, um, you know, not valuing people's uh, culture, the way we speak, the way we talk, the way we see the world, our worldviews in this moment in time, since the racial reckoning and the pandemic, it's OK for us to understand as a country that people are not sick because they, they don't understand how to have access to nutrition. It's because food deserts. Yep. Things that are outside of their control, that, that organic food, for some reason, when I was little, it was free. Now it's the most expensive thing, you know, um, things that we used to be able to grow, you know, um, and, and that the cheapest things in our communities are the most unhealthy things, yep. uh, but they're the most calorie rich. So, you know, if you don't have a lot of money, people are not always going to bed hungry, even though they're not probably going to bed healthy. Um so, you know, there are all of these things. And then this is what, you know, causes some people to despair. Then what do we do? You know, there's so much. What do we do? And, um, you know, I say, borrowing the language, it's a wide blue ocean. Mm -hmm. No one has solved this. So we can solve it. It's very easy as long as we think outside the box and really hold these goals of equity, which is giving the most to the people who have the least mm -hmm. and justice, shoring up a system that ensures that going forward at some point, we will have a level playing field where we can do equality. But in the interim, we must do equity because we're leaving genius on the table. Mm -hmm. um, just quickly, my lived experience was that I, I was a high school dropout. You know, the fact that I'm sitting in the seat that I am, a, a place of privilege in my life and, you know, um, being able to use, leverage my lived experience, my education that I went to finally as a non-traditional first-generation college student doing undergrad at 30, doing a master's at 35, um, I was told I couldn't learn. Mm 
Mm -hmm. uh, and so when I could learn, I would imagine how surprised I was. And then, you know, being able to do this kind of work, which people are like, so what did you study for this? I said, this work didn't exist when I was in college. Uh, but because of the, the way that I bring work and the different things I studied, political economy, social contract theory, um, race, ethnicity, post-colonial studies, thinking about how do you reverse the system, um, these jobs have now appeared. So I would say to anyone, no matter what age you are, solutions can be made. They will come from the ground up. We have a unique way of being able to see the systems and structures. They call it the external locus of control. Um, you know, they wanted us to have an internal locus of control to believe we were the problem. But Black people in particular always said it was a system. We always said it was the man. We always knew it was something outside of us delimiting what we could achieve. And because of that, we also, you know, all people in poverty are so creative because you must be right. to make a dollar, you know, a dollar out of 15 cents. That's magic, you know, in many ways. So I feel heartened and the work that I do with other organizations is really being able to help people to understand, as June Jordan said, we are the ones we've been waiting for. And this moment requires experimentation, courage, and the ability to understand all of these forces and ensure that we're keeping the people most impoverished at the center and driving resources into their pockets. All we need to do is do that a few places, a few times. It will take over, like the school lunch program. You know, these things then can become institutionalized. But what I believe we can see in this lifetime is an alleviation of this deep impoverishment, multi-generational impoverishment, and a resurgence of our economy um, as something led by creativity and brilliance that is then again leading in this world because we're connected to our humanity and we're not just driven by profit, right? We are actually driven by care and concern and, and love of each other. So, yeah, agreed. And I, uh, the fact that we do live in a capitalistic uh, country is great, but I do agree with you where I feel like some of our humanity has been lost with that because we're in a society that craves power and craves um, money. And, you know, it's, it's not very helpful, right? <laughs> I mean, yes, money is helpful. Money helps everything, you know, solves a lot of problems, but it's not who we are. It's not what we are as a people. Um, and speaking of people, uh, you know, we have these conversations, um, you know, amongst us, and we know the struggles, We've, we whether, you know, you come from... Um, Asia, South America, Africa, you know, the immigrant experience, African-American experience, the enslaved people's experience. We have these conversations among us, but some people will say, well, there are a lot of um, non-rich white folk out there too. Where do they fit into this conversation? Mm -hmm. Oh, I agree. I grew up in rural Oregon. <laughs> um, <laughs> trust me, uh, 180 miles from Portland, you know, in uh, in a town that had fishing, timber, you know, these very blue collar ways of, of earning. And then tourism took over once all of those things collapsed because we overfished and overlogged. Um, and so poverty, it was always there, but then it became very acute. Um, my thing with economic equity, racial economic equity, it will fix everything, right? It, it is the rising tide. Um, if we create a floor, <laughs> it ensures that everybody has access to better services, to better resources, to better amenities, 
Um, and what the issue is and what my project works for with human-centered design for system change is that no one spent time also looking at impoverished white communities and saying, what is not working? here you know a lot of people especially like in the west um benefited from the donation land act you know the uh, reallocation of indigenous land to, to white people it, it was only allocated to white people yeah. um that you know a lot of people migrate to the west but have ties to wealth in the east um and i'm not saying that this is exclusive or or to this place but if we really start to look at the socioeconomic circumstances of people that's what I always lead with beyond race, because most of the people in this country who are poor are white. It's just for people of color, a disproportionate number of us are in poverty. So it, it is a universal problem. I think um, the Poor People's Campaign, the Revitalized Poor People Campaign, say there are over 150 million Americans in poverty. And that is almost half of us. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of people. Right. Um, but, you know, there's always the question about do people see themselves in a movement, okay. right? Is this for them? Because, you know, sociologically, a lot of people feel like, you know, if they're from the dominant culture, I just need one good big break and I will be wealthy not understanding the structural nature of inequality mm -hmm. and that that means we inherit it that each generation that is born will live this experience unless we change the way the system works and you know i think there's several bright lights and bright linings you know i've been asked this question when i go and give presentations so what it, what can white people you know how can we benefit from this and i say you know if you like any of these models <laughs> you know thinking about community development finance institutions community land trusts community investment trusts um community impact funds ways that money is brought into a community owned controlled along with land economic development if you're creating entrepreneurial opportunities how many people in your community have great ideas and could build beautiful things mm -hmm. but never had access to a market this internet is incredible no longer do you have to sell to the 5,000 people who live next to you. You can sell to the whole world. Mm -hmm. Like, But people, especially in rural areas, which is where a lot of poverty exists in urban areas as well, don't have connectivity and often don't have people coming back who made it and said, hey, listen, I want to teach you how to do a thing, which is what technical assistance capacity building is. I've gone and done some things that have helped me get to a certain place. Do I know how to solve wealth inequality writ large? Absolutely not. But do I know how to help someone perhaps like me who earns now in a month or less what I earned in a year? I can help to make sense of that, perhaps with a job that never existed and, and how we leverage our brilliance and our lived experience. Um, I would, I love, you know, anything that can inspire and change the lives of people. And, you know, the movements of the past that were successful, civil rights, every movement, they are multiracial. Yeah. They are multi-class. We need everyone. And so that would always be my invitation. If people don't see themselves in the work, ask how, how it can be made relevant to you. But also, you know, it, it requires being brave enough to say, I am the least among us. I am the most impacted. Many people don't want to say that because it hurts to realize that everything that you've done has also been thwarted by these systems and structures. 
but to me, that's not the end of the story. That's just a starting point. So then, so then what do we build? What do we do? And how do we bring in the hearts and minds of people with resources mm -hmm. to finance this thing? And a lot of people are looking for things that they didn't value before. Like the tech sector, I was reading, they now hire more philosophers than like STEM and STEAM trained people. So interesting to me. I study philosophy. Everybody says you're never going to get a job. <laughs> The reason critical thinking, big picture thinking, macro thinking, being able to see things um, visually that are abstract, right? And being able to apply those kind of practices and processes to solving, you know, kind of tech issues. It's such an, a wide blue ocean. Mm -hmm. Nothing that stood before the rules have changed. So at this point, it's, you know, like hearts, like minds, like hands and work coming together, but also us all being able to find our tribes, right? Our people who think similarly, who can speak a similar language, who understand design thinking and how we build something out of nothing and that you can do something beyond the binary of this way or that way. There's a third way, a 10th way, you know, um, that there are many ways to solve these issues and that we all need to pilot. We need to be rolling these things out Guaranteed basic income is an amazing movement that's happening. The question is, how many places do we need to pilot this before we say it does great things? Mm -hmm. Let's everybody do it, you know. Yeah. Um, but those those moments, I think, are coming. They're coming sooner. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it is kind of like you're on a roller coaster right now. It's like we're at that very top right before that drop. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so and yeah. you, you mentioned earlier, um, get involved. Uh, you want people like me at this point, especially people like me that, you know, I'm first generation um, Latino here. You know, my mom, like I've mentioned earlier, worked her behind off to get me to where I'm at, to give me the opportunities to do things such as this podcast. Right. Mm -hmm. So how do we get involved? What What would you say someone who's wanting to who's listening right now and being like, you know what, I can help. I can give a dime or I can volunteer my time. Where do people go? Do you have a contact information where people can you know, reach out to you to help, whether it's the DC area or somewhere else? Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're headquartered in DC, but like my portfolio, I've been in 14 cities across the country wow. at this point over the past five years. Um, you know, there are so many local organizations that people can get involved with. Right. Um, but I think prosperitynow.org website i've you know co-authored quite a few reports that have a lot of guidance and most specifically the african-american financial capability initiative report is an 84 pager so i'm going to give you the secret <laughs> the last half has recommendations for funders practitioners and community members about how they can help co-create solutions in their communities mm -hmm. um i think it, we need everyone um, and really, we need people's solutions and their willingness to, to slog through. I've been told often that this work is hard. It's long. You never know. It's kind of like feeling in the dark. Um, but my programs only last, you know, 18 months, two years at most. Um, and to see what communities then build, they're now speaking more locally about the work they're doing. Our goal in this next year is to really be able to pilot, or I mean, um, center them with regard to blogs, being able to get the, their voices out themselves. But um, 
being able to reach out to any human service organization, like, you know, up together, folks who are doing innovative things. I love your direct cash transfer. I'm just like, that is mind blowing. The fact that community members are being brought in as, um, as co-creators of policy agenda and are being given like real dollars, you know, not just uh, here's a $25 gift card, but here's a couple thousand dollars for this you know, several months of your time and expertise. Mm -hmm. It's brilliant and beautiful to see how communities are solving um, for all of these issues and how they're making it so that people who are closest to the problem can continue to bring their solutions because the main issue is lack of access to resources. Mm -hmm. It isn't that people don't care. Yes, it is also that people don't have time, but the best way to buy time is give people some money and then they can have more time to participate in things that are really meaningful to them. But prosperitynow.org, um, you know, you can follow folks on LinkedIn or Twitter. Um, we put out a lot of information, um, but we're definitely going to start amping up our work. This is our second year, the Racial Wealth Equity Strategy Team. So now we're pivoting to do more amplification of the beautiful work that's done by our partners. Love it. Okay. And so... There's one other, one other part, well, our final question, and we call it's a segment that we call free game, right? So you're going to go ahead and school politicians, organizations, or <laughs> what, what would you tell somebody that they're doing wrong or doing well? What, what kind of advice would you give essentially if you were confronted with a person who does make policies and tell them, Hey, you're doing this wrong. You need to be working or looking at this. What would you, what's something that you would say to them? I love this question. My colleague and I were just having this conversation today. I said, how do we leverage all the insights, lessons learned, emergent promising practices for so many years of working with grassroots organizations to change grass top structures, mm -hmm. if that's public sector, private sector, philanthropy, um, other nonprofits. Um, the main thing is we are still doing for people instead of doing things with, alongside, um, and in support of the leadership and decision-making of the people most impacted. We're still infantilizing people. We're still doing a saviorist approach. Mm -hmm. um, and we keep wondering, why is this not landing? It's not rooted in the needs or the strengths or the assets of community. So what I would say is when we go to community and they say, we need money, we hear them. And we understand that through a structural lens of wage and wealth inequality. We don't think, oh my gosh, will they be will they be responsible with this money? Are they gonna buy steaks? Are they gonna buy a TV? Like to understand that people mm, don't believe those stereotypes, number one. But also thinking about what could these communities do if they had as much money as we're giving. That's the thing with policy, right? It's a lever to allocate dollars. Um, so if we're giving money to our, our favorites who always get these resources, but we're seeing the outcomes are consistently the same, we need to have courage. We need to do direct, long-term, unrestricted funding, what Vule calls, my God, multi-year um, general operating dollars um, to organizations who are doing well. We need to, to um, invest in their abilities to um, develop infrastructure so they can do evaluation and monitoring of their own work. And we really need to use our budgets as moral documents. We must invest in what we value what we profess to value, because if we do not, mm -hmm. when I follow the money, I can tell you what you value. And often you don't want me to say that publicly. So the best advice is to align your message and your money 
if you are in a position of power and you're professing to do equity and justice. Align your money with power. I'm going to use that. I'm definitely using mm-hmm. that. I love that. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Uh, Kat Goganauer is the director Absolutely. is the director of wealth equity excuse me is the director of racial wealth equity strategy at prosperity now i want to thank you so much for coming on just taking the time to talk to us and really giving us an in-depth look at you know just everything that has to do with economics gentrification wealth gap um thank you thank you i'm so grateful for the invitation and so excited to be a part of the work you all are doing thank you for having me by the national nonprofit Up Together and produced by Creative Differences. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.